thought capital. The world changed dramatically. Sustainable business practices. Phenomenally important with the young people. Riding the Chinese tiger. Leadership goes beyond making a profit. Let's be forward thinking. We do need to accommodate difference. Hello, I'm Michael Pascoe. If we're ever to have equality. Welcome to Thought Capital, the podcast that delves into the wealth of ideas created by the experts at Monash Business School in Melbourne, Australia. Bullying, harassment and discrimination should have no place in the workforce, but it continues. My client informed her employer that she was pregnant. She was demoted, her pay was cut, she was pressured to leave. The Me Too movement unleashed recognition of just how prevalent it is. For all the progress we've made, there continue to be cases of workers discriminated against on the basis of their race, gender, religion or sexual orientation. To deal with these issues, Victoria claims to have the most advanced Equal Opportunity Act in the country, yet it has limitations. Dr Dominic Allen is a senior lecturer within the Department of Business, Law and Taxation. She's here to discuss the Equal Opportunity Act shortcomings and why it is so hard to deal with discrimination. Dr Allen, what's the problem with the Act? The problem with Australia's anti-discrimination laws are they rely on the individual who's experienced discrimination to do something about them. There's no agency, no other body that will take action, like there is in competition regulation, let's say, where you've got the ACCC. But only the individual can know. Isn't that the case? I mean, who's going to look into a workplace and find out? Well, we could have a regulator that did that. If, if an individual could take a complaint to them and say, hey, this has happened to me at work or this has happened to me in a school, and they might then say, oh, we've had other people in the same situation, or yes, this is a problem in this industry, we'll do something about it. But there isn't that option at the moment. So the Victorian Equal Opportunity Act doesn't help the individual beyond saying, here's the law, go use it? Only in the sense that the Victorian Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission, that an individual can take a claim to, and they will help facilitate it being resolved. They'll bring the two parties together, let's say it's an employee and an employer, bring them into a room and say, can we resolve this? If they can't, then the employee can go to court if they want to. Well, this Act is eight years old. It replaces one from 1995. Mm. What changed between those two times? There was an understanding that the Act was very focused on the individual um, and we do need to accommodate difference if we're ever to have equality. So a couple of interesting mechanisms were introduced in the Act, things like an employee, employer, sorry, or a service provider or an educational provider, if they've got someone with a disability, they need to accommodate that disability if that's reasonable. So there's an obligation on the employer to do something. That's one of the things the Act did. The Act in its objects, which are used to interpret the Act by the court, is very committed to substantive equality, progressively achieving equality. So it's got all these suppose, lovely statements in it to try and um, work towards a more equal society. This Act has got more simplified definitions of discrimination. It shifts some of the onus of proving discrimination onto the respondent. Um, so it's, it's designed to make it more accessible than the other acts. So there's been an evolution, but you've interviewed a number of lawyers who worked directly with it and mm. have criticism of it. Yeah. Look, they've been happy with, with these definitions that I've mentioned. They've said, look, that makes things a lot simpler. We can actually focus on 
what actually happened, not spend our time and not have um, a person bringing a claim um, accrue lots of legal costs trying to argue over a definition. We can actually look at well, what's happened here, how can we resolve it? So some of those things they've been happier with. Some of the things they haven't been as happy with, there's an obligation in the Act for employers and service providers to try and eliminate discrimination as far as they possibly can. But if they don't, there's no consequence that follows from that. There needs to be a penalty if you don't do this or what's the point of having that sort of provision in, in, the, in the law. That sounds like complaints from lawyers acting for those discriminated against. Do lawyers acting for employers see it differently? I think the lawyers who act for um, employers and other respondents are also happier with the simplified definitions because it's clear what has to be proved and what they have to show in a defence. Um, but they have also said that having this obligation, this duty in the Act that isn't enforceable doesn't make a lot of sense. It's sort of been described as a toothless tiger. Majority of people settle discrimination cases privately anyway, don't they? Yes, they do. Is that a bad thing? I mean, no one wants to get caught up in a legal system if they can avoid it. There are many reasons both parties wouldn't want to go to court. The problem is it makes it very privatised and very hidden. So people could be forgiven for thinking, oh, discrimination doesn't exist. We never hear about it. There are no cases. We didn't know there was sexual harassment still taking place until this Me Too movement happened. Who knew? So the community isn't aware that it's still a problem but also we're not aware about of the nature of discrimination, how it's happening. Not only are the claims settled privately, and they usually include a confidentiality clause, which means neither party can talk about them, the equal opportunity agencies here in Victoria and the other states and territories don't release much information about the nature of discrimination, the types of claims that they're seeing, how this is impacting upon the workplace. So the whole system has become very privatised and very hidden. How does it impact on the workplace? I suppose it depends on the nature of discrimination. It might be a workplace um, that has a restructure while a woman's on maternity leave and comes back and finds she doesn't have a job. The same woman wanting flexible working conditions when she's returned from leave and not able to have that. It might be in the interviewing process or the recruitment process, being discriminated against based on um, a disability or perceived disability. In the workplace, there are many instances it could come out. Discrimination is also prohibited in the delivery of goods and services, in the provision of education. Education, it might be denying a place at a school to a child because of a disability and the school not being able to support that. Michael Giannopoulos is a solicitor with Anderson Gray Lawyers, a firm that works exclusively in employment law and solely on behalf of employees. He told me about a couple of workplace discrimination cases he's recently worked on. An employee instructed me that she had attended a meeting where the company was weighing up its strengths and weaknesses and a manager actually just said that one of the weaknesses of the company was the number of female employees because they leave to have babies. That was actually put in a meeting Uh, and the moderator absentmindedly actually wrote babies as one of the weaknesses of the company uh, on the board. Uh, My client, needless to say, uh, complained about this. And subsequently, when my client informed her employer that she was pregnant and that she would require maternity leave, I think within a week of this, she was demoted, her pay was cut, she was moved away from her team, she was pressured to leave. So these weren't isolated things, this was uh, a general attitude from the employer. And so that was a matter of quite overt discrimination 
in a way that you usually don't see. And we managed to negotiate a resolution of the matter. So the client no longer wished to work for the employer and the employer, it seemed, no longer wished her to work for them. And so uh, we reached an agreement whereby she was paid a sum of compensation and she resigned. I would mention another case, which was an instance of sexual harassment. A client who worked in retail was sexually harassed on a work trip. It was a clear case of sexual harassment. Subsequently, she made a complaint to her immediate manager and her immediate manager suggested that she consider resigning. While she was considering this and considering her options, the immediate manager simply told head office that she had resigned. We took instructions from her and filed an application in VCAT and the matter proceeded to a compulsory conference which was conducted by a member of VCAT. Uh, We were able to, if you like, tell our client's story and ventilate her concerns and we were able to negotiate a compensatory settlement. And certainly the client was grateful for the process. It was a difficult day, needless to say, putting this case and negotiating a settlement, but my client was pleasantly surprised with the outcome. Michael Giannopoulos, there's criticism that the current act puts too much of the responsibility onto the employee, the individual. Do you see that and how does it manifest itself? I think one way this manifests is that a company often will be able to provide witness statements from a number of employees who are willing to make statements to back their employer, whereas uh, the individual claimant uh, may struggle to obtain the same number of witness statements or might struggle to obtain any corroborating witness statements at all because, of course, people are reluctant to make statements which might reflect negatively on their employer if they're current employees, whereas if they're previous employees, they may just want to stay out of it, or uh, there might be an argument or a suggestion that this is kind of sour grapes from an embittered previous employee. So whichever way you look at it, there can be obstacles for an employee in furnishing a court or a tribunal with uh, statements from co-workers or former co-workers that corroborate their account. You can see the power imbalance in the difficulty an applicant might have with delay or with cost and with stress that can be involved in pursuing a matter to hearing. Generally, an applicant will bear the costs of pursuing a matter themselves, and equally, the delay and stress involved might bear more heavily on them than it would on a, on a company. Dominic Allen, is it fair to say that there's been an evolution from that original act to the current one, and now you're saying there's a need for something more proactive yes. to go further? Yeah. When discrimination laws were passed 40 years ago, they were very effective at getting rid of blatant discrimination, addressing a woman who wasn't allowed to be a pilot was a famous case. So they were very good at at doing that. But discrimination has become more subtle, um, harder to address. And so there is a need to actually recognise this and have laws that do something about it. And when they first were introduced, they were about race and sex. And then other attributes were added, disability, age. We now have a whole raft of attributes that are prohibited, but they haven't actually addressed inequality effectively. While you're saying the law should be stronger, um, certainly I hear from businesses that it can already be abused, that a worker who is simply a dud worker can claim to be discriminated against. Is there a balance there? There is a balance, and ideally the system would deal with this 
um, because the first step is to take the claim to the Equal Opportunity Agency and test it in some ways, test the merits. And ideally, the DUD employee would see, well, there's no point going any further here. I don't have a leg to stand on if it goes further. Um, so I guess that's one advantage of the of the system and the way it operates now. But it is important to to also recognise that there are strong cases that go to the Commission and they also settle. And so it means that we're not necessarily getting those strong cases that would develop the law um, going through to court because there are reasons employers don't want to end up in court, so they will settle those ones as well. They'll resist the dud ones but also settle the strong ones. Which is not an unreasonable way for the law to work, is it? No, but it does mean that if we have so few cases going through, the case law doesn't develop. So it's it's difficult in, in a lot of instances to know how the law would apply because there simply hasn't been any cases on it. And I think that also makes it difficult for business if they think, well, I've got this obligation under the Act and I've got a state act I have to comply with and a federal act and we've got a Fair Work Act and I wonder how they all interact together. I wonder how this one applies in this circumstance because we don't have any cases to tell us. I'm feeling sorry for business at the moment having to deal with all those acts. It's a complex regime. And it was complex already when we had state and federal acts and then the Fair Work Act came about around the same time as this Equal Opportunity Act was introduced in Victoria. So, And for the first time, the Fair Work Act prohibited discrimination in the workplace. So suddenly there are three options <laughs> and three regimes for employers to deal with. So it's difficult because they're also not consistent. This gets worse the more you talk about it. <laughs> what chance of rationalising it? I don't think it's on the political agenda at the moment. <laughs> It's alleged weaknesses. It's still claimed that this Victorian Act is the best in the country. Why? Because it's got better definitions of discrimination, obligations on employers and service providers to accommodate disability. The other unique mechanism it has is that a person who's experienced discrimination doesn't have to go through the Equal Opportunity Commission if they don't want to. They can go directly to the Civil Tribunal in Victoria if they feel so inclined. So that can possibly speed up the process. Is there a consistent message that comes through when you interview lawyers working in this area? The message that's come through is about the system itself. Both sides prefer to settle these things and there are valid reasons for doing so. The cost of pursuing litigation, the stress, the time involved for both sides, the risk of losing, and also for employers and other businesses the what's what one lawyer called to me the the page three factor not wanting to end up in the newspaper and be found to have discriminated against or worse sexually harassed somebody so it's a commercial decision often for employers to settle these things i'm michael pasco you're listening to thought capital from monash business school The Me Too movement certainly exploded across the internet in 2017 and exposed the prevalence of sexual harassment across a number of industries and institutions. Women are all too familiar with experiencing sexual harassment. Has the Me Too movement changed the way that we view harassment and discrimination now? I don't think it's changed the way we view it, but I think it's changed that people are talking about it more. It's raised awareness Um, It's led to the Australian Human Rights Commission conducting an inquiry into it um, and asking people to give them evidence 
about what is actually taking place in the workplaces so that we can then look at, well, do we need to reform the law and try and tackle this more effectively? There is a constant evolution, a greater expectation of what the law might be able to achieve. When you mentioned there was a time when a woman wasn't allowed to be a pilot, I'm old enough to remember those days, yet it shocks me. I'd forgotten. Mm. Now is there an expectation that we will move to the law being used for almost a quota system down the track? I don't think there's an expectation. I think there might be a fear of that, of, of the law becoming that interventionist. Um, but I think at this point, no, it's more about the law, workplaces, businesses accommodating difference, recognising that, well, now women can perform any role, any profession that they want to, but they have different needs often and we need to accommodate them if they're going to um, participate fully. What should employers be doing to prevent discrimination in the workplace? What do they need to think about to get ahead of the game? I think they need to be, if they're not already, aware of their legal responsibilities and legal obligations and make sure that they're training staff on what their responsibilities are, what their rights are, but also thinking proactively about how any changes they make in the workplace might impact upon someone with a disability. To do that from the outset rather than waiting until someone's been discriminated against. And on the other foot, if an individual has been discriminated against, what should they do? They should probably seek legal advice. If they've been discriminated against at work, for example, and they've been fired, under the Fair Work Act, they've only got 21 days to lodge a claim before that door closes. So they'd want to seek legal advice and seek it soon about what the best avenue for addressing the discrimination is. Is it just the Act or is the legal system, um, the lawyers, are they failing the individual? It illustrates some of the problems with the legal system. There are many lawyers that do work in this area pro bono, which means they do it for free. Um, solicitors and barristers that I've spoken to try and do that because it's an area that they feel passionate about. But there's not enough of that. And of course, they need to sustain their own legal practice. They can't work for free all the time. Um, there's a lack of legal aid funding. Victoria has, has some, but I know in other states and territories, people can't get access to legal aid if they've got a discrimination claim. The other tricky part of it is if somebody decides to take their case to the tribunal and they win, it's very hard for them to get their costs, their legal costs paid by the other side. The tribunal doesn't like awarding those costs. So that might mean that they can take their claim, they can be successful, they can be given a damages award, and that might not be enough to cover their legal costs. Or they might, as some lawyers have said to me, they might break even. You certainly don't end up with a windfall in this area of law. Um, and it, it, it makes it difficult for lawyers to represent people or even some of the lawyers I've spoken to will say perhaps they're representing somebody through um, their union. And they'll say, look, we can represent you at the Equal Opportunity Agency, but if you take this further, we can't. We just don't have the resources. We can't fund it at court. So yeah. if you had your way to change the Act, what's the key change you'd make? take the entire burden off the individual to bring their claim and give an agency some power to address discrimination. The other change I would like to see is courts don't order an employer to change their policies. They don't order that a building should be made accessible. They don't order systemic change. And I would like to see courts have the ability to order systemic change and do it more often. 
there are laws there to help the individual. There's a legal system that's meant to help the individual. What can really happen? Well, I suppose a good way to to illustrate this is a case from a couple of years ago um, from Sydney, a high-profile case. Graham Innes was the Disability Discrimination Commissioner at the time, and Commissioner Innes is blind, and he experienced travelling on Sydney trains a number of times and them not providing audible stop announcements, so he didn't know where he was. Um, He, in his personal capacity, would make a claim at the Australian Human Rights Commission, try to resolve it, it wouldn't go anywhere, and he did this a number of times before he finally thought, I will take legal action. Again, in his personal capacity, not as the Commissioner, because he didn't have the power to do that as the Commissioner. So he took the claim in his personal capacity at the risk of great cost. It was in the federal court. If he lost, he would have had to pay the other side's costs. Um, But fortunately, he won. And Railcorp New South Wales was ordered to compensate him. So it was quite a long process. He had to try and resolve the claim privately. Privately, he then had to go to court. He had the risk of costs. And then he was awarded compensation. Now, after the case had finished, Railcorp New South Wales agreed that it would provide audible stop announcements, but the court didn't order that, which means potentially the discriminatory practice was still in place and it would have taken another person to make another complaint and try and resolve it again. So I think this shows how it's really focused on the individual and it puts quite a burden on the individual to change the system. So on a scale of 1 to 10, how do you score the current Victorian Equal Opportunity Act? Seven. I think it's doing better than the others, but there's still room to improve. You've been listening to Thought Capital from Monash Business School. You can find more episodes on iTunes, Spotify and Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode was produced by Tina Zanu, editor is Nadia Hume, sound production by Richard Edlin. Executive producer is Helen Westerman. Thought Capital is recorded at Monash School of Media, Film and Journalism.